0: Bless you. Hope you're having a wonderful day. Good start to your morning. Can you please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4? We've come as far as verse four, uh, chapter 4, and today, as the Lord will lead, we will finish the book of 2 Timothy, um, if he doesn't take us home beforehand, which I'm all a part of the rapture plan, so I'm, I'm all for that right now. I think every one of you is like, yeah, Absolutely. Well, it's your turn in there. Does anybody need a Bible? Any uh, our ushers and elders are walking around. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we need one over here. Great. Anyone else need one? Good. Okay. Just to make sure everybody's got one. All right. Well, you know, as we've been going line by line and verse through uh, verse through this book, beautiful book. Um, it sort of saddens my heart as we come to the end of Second Timothy. I really love this book. I've loved our study together. Um, it's been, it's been truly anointed by the Lord. I mean, in, in regards to the things we've seen going on around us today. Um, I mean, this to think about this. If you would have read this hundred years ago, we, as we'd be going through some of these passages, we wouldn't have seen the fulfillment of everything that we've seen today. That's so clear as we read this last chapter, especially it's. It's just such an amazing time to be alive, an amazing time to be alive and to be born again in Jesus Christ. Paul is going to be making a a sort of his continuation of his thought progression. If you look in verse one, he says, I charge you, right? therefore now whenever we see a therefore we always know that we have to stop and say what's it there for right and to do that we're going to be backing up through to verses 14 through 16 and i'll i'll say i'll you know we'll read that together again and then we'll proceed uh on but it's important to understand that this is a charge this is a command directly from jesus christ and god the father for the pastor for the church for the overseers within the church So I'd like to ask you to just all all bow our heads and we'll begin. Father, we just thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being able just to lift your name on high and worship you, Lord. Lord, we're going to do that forever, and you are so worthy, God. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you would go before us right now, anoint your word, plant it in our hearts. Give us those eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. And Lord, we pray just do the work, Lord, in our hearts as far as an enlarging of our Do that work in us, Lord Jesus. We ask and we pray all of this in your holy and mighty name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, verse 1 says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So that's the first statement that he makes I charge you, therefore, therefore, what's he building on? What's the thought progression then? Well, if you back up to chapter 3 and you look at verses 14 through 16, it helps us understand, again, this is the theme of the entire book. The book of 2 Timothy is about the character of a pastor, the character of an overseer, a leader within the church. 1 Timothy was also not about the character, but about the conduct of a pastor and the conduct of the church as a whole. In 2 Timothy, though, the Lord and the Holy Spirit narrowing in specifically Paul in prison, sitting in a dungeon, basically a below-ground dungeon, where they would have only had a 12-inch you know, to 18-inch hole just to drop food into him. You know, dark, dreary, moldy mildew. I mean, terrible, terrible environment. He finds himself in there, cold. He's, he's you know, wanting to write this last letter. This is the last epistle that Paul will write Timothy. I know in your Bible, you say, wait a minute, what about Titus and, you know, Philemon or Philemon, depending on how you want to pronounce that. Uh, Those actually are not the last letters. Second Timothy is the swan song. This is the last Pauline epistle that we have, the last of the letters. And it is a pastoral epistle that way, but it is the last. So when he comes back, he's ending in chapter four, everything he's going to say to young Timothy. And I just put myself in his Choose for a moment just to think what it would be like sitting there. What would be the words you would speak to your son or daughter in the faith or your beloved? I mean, granted, he's talking to a pastor, so it would be a man, but, but your, your son in the faith here. What would be the last words you would leave them with in this chapter? Probably the things that they need to know to survive, the things that are going to keep them, no matter what is coming, because at any moment he knows he's about to be beheaded. He's going to be executed at any moment. And he knows that. So what would you tell your son in the faith if you could just leave them with a few words? Well, Paul says, keep on keeping on. Keep the word of God. Keep to the sound doctrine. He says, the word of God, all scripture is given by inspiration. That is what he wants to leave Timothy with because he knows it won't be very long and this martyrdom will be coming to him. And he doesn't want him to run. He doesn't want him to run when it becomes difficult. He doesn't want him to run when the government and the police start knocking at your door. He wants you to be able to stand. Verse 14 says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's the only thing that is able to make us wise. And then he goes on in verse 16, all scripture is given, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness and right living, that the man of God may be complete, the idea there in the Greek, perfect or furnished with every piece of equipment that you would need. Complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, every deed, every activity, every action that will be undertaken for Christ Jesus, that you would be equipped for that and ready, whatever would come. It's because of that he then in chapter 4 says, Now I charge you, I command you by God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. Therefore, Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living? Look, it's going to be tempting, Timothy, to be concerned what other people are doing and even what's going on in the church in Ephesus there that you've been at for all these years. But Timothy, you don't answer to anyone but to God. You answer to God. You will be judged by God, Timothy. This judgment isn't the judgment for salvation, friends. This is the Bema Seat judgment that every single believer will go before. It's not about, we know faith comes by Jesus Christ and him alone. This is the judgment that you as believers in Christ, you and I will stand for him and he will say, what have you done with the resources that I've given you? Your time, your heart, your finance, all of it. What have you done with it? For the kingdom of God. What, what have you done with it? That's, that's what he's saying, because that's the judgment. Is Anything that's of wood, hay, and stubble, it's all going to what? As we read in Corinthians, it's all going to burn. That's right. It's all going to burn. You're not going to be thinking about what car you drove. <laughs> you're going to think about what house you had. And those things are nice and gifts from the Lord, and praise him for those things. But that's not what you're going to be thinking about. It's what did you do with the giftings that he has given you? And how were they invested in the kingdom of God? He says, everyone's going to be judged that way, the living and the dead. And he said, at his appearing, his coming, right, and his kingdom. That's the only thing that counts. We answer to God. So what does he tell a preacher to do at that point? Preach the word. What's that word preach mean in the Greek? It's herald give the word of god. This is important today. You would think this would be you would think this would be simple. Preach the word. Come on, Matt, preach the word, right? Or Timothy or And for the last few thousand years it was pretty simple. Today? Oh, We have seen this prophetically fulfilled before our very eyes when he is being told to preach the word because there are churches that are absent of the word of God and absent of God himself because the word of God is not taught. He goes on, preach the word. Now, he's not just talking about (laughs) preach what you want to preach as a pastor, overseer. No, he's saying preach all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. You don't skip any of it. You don't go to what you want to teach, what you think the people want to hear. You preach the whole counsel of God and trust the Holy Spirit to speak into the hearts of the people because they, and God most importantly, knows what you need. Not a man. A man can never get this right. A man will never get this right up here. But God always does. He must be the shepherd of the church. His word must go forward. And all the pastors to do is, not all, as I say it dismissingly, but required, commanded. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That takes a whole new meaning when you're sitting in a prison cell below ground. Paul, he's going to even explain that as we get to the end of chapter 4. He's going to say he took liberty. At the time, he should have been uh, character witnesses coming forward to speak on his character. He said there was none. So he said, I Preach the word. Because that's what we're to do. That's what a pastor does. He preaches the word. He's he's to do a couple other things here. Why is he to be ready in season and out of season? Good question. Look what he says. Convince, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. And we might take that and say, what what does that mean? Please remember, I I draw us back to verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you. It's a command by God, right? Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, before the Father in heaven, and before Jesus Christ, his Son, the Father and the Son that way. To convince, what is that? To reprove, right? Um, convict a sinful state. Yes, the pastor is to do that. A pastor is to, to come forward, and there's a situation, things going on in lives. He's not to be an absentee pastor. I don't know how else to say it. He's to to be transparent and honest and come forward and say, no, this is sin. Sin is sin. We don't compromise. He's not to, to be a respecter of persons. It's difficult. That's why Paul's telling Timothy this. Because Timothy loves the, the people in Ephesus. He loves them. He's been there since Paul had loved. He loves them, but there are certainly things that he's seeing. Other alternate doctrines as we read in 1 Timothy? Right? Even when he went to Galatia, Galatians chapter 1, 6, he said the same thing. They're teaching an alternate doctrine. He says, before you have love, though, you've got to have light. You gotta have truth. Because you can love somebody right to the pit of hell. That's not what we're talking about here. Truth. That's What's well, in high demand? That's what's in high order today. And, and he says the pastor is commanded to reprove or convict of a sinful state by mouth. In other words, things that are being expressed, and, and the pastors to turn around and come back and, and talk and have a conversation about these things. Remember, if you're a pastor, if you're here, we're charged. Bring light, bring truth, correct wrong thinking. But you know where that begins? (laughs) Begins in my heart first, doesn't it? It begins with reading the word of God and God changing my heart. Doesn't it begin before you open your mouth to speak with someone else? Doesn't it begin in your heart first? God does a work in your heart. And then you open your mouth and speak the joy of what God has done in your lives. He says rebuke. That's stronger now. Now it's getting stronger. It's getting heavy, right? What that means is, again, to charge with a fault or wrong, a wrongdoing. It's stronger. I I think the best way to to let the Scripture speak on this matter is to look at Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, please, in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. That's to your right, a few books to your right, please. Take your time. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Again, a few books to your right. You're going to go past Titus. You're going to go past Philemon or Philemon. And then you're going to get to Hebrews. If you look at chapter 12, verse 1, he says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Did y'all catch that as we're kind of making our way? Sanctification is done by Jesus Christ alone. He's the author and finisher of the work. Our part and parcel in that is to be Uh, willing to surrender to Christ so that he can do the work, not to fight him in it, but to sort of take that tight grasp and give it to the Lord and say, my life is yours, I'm submitted, I'm surrendered. And then he will finish and be the finisher of our faith. Who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And I believe there's probably some weary and discouraged folks here this morning. With everything that's going on in this world, this government and all the politics and all of that, boy, it'll wear you down. It'll wear you down. You know, you turn on one news channel, they'll tell you one thing, you turn on the other, and you got to try to ferret out the truth. And there is no truth between either one of them, is there? It's all just another slice of a piece of pie, but another slice of uh, some aspect of it. What you have before you is the truth, the word of God. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. It is a strive. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as son. And this is where I wanted to draw your attention this morning. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor to be scourged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I know that's hard this morning as we read that. Well, love me less. Love me less. no. <laughs> We need to continue reading on to to, to really appreciate God's heart in this. He says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. See, this comes with privilege. We're children of God. This This is privilege to be a son or a daughter of God. And with that privilege comes this chastening, this love from God, a real love, a perfect love. Right? For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In other words, if that doesn't happen, is there truly love? But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed... For a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, speaking of God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, now no chastening seems to be joyful from the present. I've never met a single person alive that is like, I love this. I love me some chastening. This feels so good. Nobody's walking around going, yeah. No, because the very next word... Uh, statement makes it obvious but painful you know why it's painful because of pride because of my pride because I try to hold on because I venture to think maybe I have a thought that's smarter or better than God's that's where all that comes from that's the pain, having to deal with the reality of what's in my heart and the thoughts I have and the things that betray me because I've elevated my thoughts or opinions above God's word and truth. When I do that, I've committed idolatry. And that's what he's talking about here. This is serious stuff. And correction is a gentle, and I say it's gentle because we deserve so <laughs> Mercy, right? Don't give me what I deserve. Grace. Lord, give us what we don't you know, deserve. Heaven. Jesus. He says here, Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It yields the peace of right living to those who have been trained by it. In other words, those that listen are changed and trained by it. It's a good thing you can turn back. You see, that's God's heart of correction. It may not feel good in the moment, but boy, does it produce real fruit. And it's a required course. We can't, you know, we'd like to think we learn through other people's, and we do sometimes, through other examples. But we, I, sometimes, well, I would have done it slightly different. Therefore, that wouldn't have happened. And therefore, I would be okay. And only to find myself in the very same place, crying out to God on my knees, weeping, going, I did the very same thing. Why is that? That's why pastors are commanded to convince, rebuke, and by the way, the next one, exhort. Circle that in your Bibles. Very, very important. Exhortation is to stir up. Encourage the holy living. Right? To take that weak, that pushing, uh, maybe a better word, stretching, not comfortable, but it keeps us growing. The first service, I just, the Lord had given it me, to me right at the time. I hadn't, uh, I don't really have a notes on this or anything. The Lord had sort of gave me an analogy, right, for the first service. So if you allow me, I'll use it second service here. But it was, I think it was, it was I thought the Lord made it very simple to understand um, for me. Uh, maybe it'll speak to your hearts, but uh, many of you have worked out. You've gone to a gym. You've, you've gone to the gym where they've got all the great equipment, right, and uh, treadmills, uh, elliptical machines, and uh, the weight presses, the Smith presses, all of the good stuff. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Exercise equipment. They're all on a floor, and there's a lot of them. You can go to all these places, and there's just like a whole floor of them, and they just stare at you in the face, or at least they do me and say, you're lazy, whatever. but That's my thing. Okay, pray for me, right? But anyway, you get there, and there's all this equipment, right? And it's all this workout equipment. You're like, all right, this is awesome. I'm going to... You know, whatever you say, you know, I don't know, sweat, burn oil, I don't know, whatever the fancy, you could tell I don't work out a whole lot. I don't know what the right thing to say is. Whatever you do when you do that, right? And you get there and you're like, this is great. And then people are coming in, hey, what workout are you going to do? Oh, I'm going over to the bench press. Oh, you go get that. You go... You go bench those weights, okay? And I'm going over to the shoulder press, and okay, I'm going to lift those things over my shoulders many times. I pick up, and I put down. That's what I do. I pick up, and I put down, right? This guys are going to curl. They're going, yeah, man, they're buff. And you're sitting there, and you're like, oh, that's awesome. Look at this guy. Look at that girl. Look at this. Oh, man, these guys are awesome. And you're like, this is great. What a great workout. And you go home, and you see your wife or your husband. You walk in the door. How was your workout today? Oh, you should have seen it. People were there, and man, they were coming in, they were bench-pressing. No, 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 honey, how was your workout? I'm telling you, people were working, they were bench-pressing, and they were, you know, lifting weight, and they were doing all this stuff. Well, let's think about what the spiritual application of that is. Not reading the Word and allowing it to transform or change our heart is much like opening the Word and reading it like a novel and expecting it not to do a transformational work of the soul. Not to split the marrow and break it apart and go in and gently remove the dross and the sin and the things that are existing that don't belong there. That only God can do that kind of work. We all laugh because we think of who would go to a gym and, you know, be a spectator instead of, you know, someone that's actually doing it. But isn't that what happens when you play church? Exhorting is what a pastor is commanded to do through the word of God, because the word of God does the work of stirring up. It stretches us. We come in here and we hear a lot of things that are very difficult for us, things that go contrary to our desires, our our flesh, our will, the things we want to do. And it works muscles in our hearts and minds and souls and areas that maybe we haven't worked in a long time. We might have read the Bible 50 times, cover to cover. Maybe you've read it one time, cover to cover. But what happens, back to our workout analogy, what happens when... Uh, you go into a gym and, boy, I used to bench 300 pounds, right, as an example. Not me, I'm saying people, you know. I've seen them do it. I know they can. You know, I can bench press probably 20, right? I get in, you know, but the point is you get in there and you sit down, right? What if I turned around and said, oh, I used to do 300 pounds, and I went and sat at that, and I, and I didn't do anything. What would happen? <laughs> right on me. And, you know, I'd be, like, suffocating myself, right? I wouldn't realize how far I had gotten off. I wouldn't realize how weak I had gotten spiritually speaking. It's no different. The Word of God, when it doesn't change the heart, when you're not when you're not in under the Word, when, when pastors aren't teaching the Word, they're creating an anemic church. And that's why Paul was so deliberate to tell Timothy, you must. I charge you, convince, rebuke, extor, exhort, stir up. Stir up and stretch. Well, What is the pastor doing to do that? Reading the word of God. God does the work through the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? He does the work. He has a he's a beautiful way of doing it. He doesn't remove what doesn't need to be removed. He only takes out what doesn't belong and only adds. You know, he does something so supernatural. It should be in the medical journals. It should be uh, it should be in like medical school. Because you tell me where there's anyone else that can take and enlarge your heart. And that's what it said, the scripture says he does. He actually enlarges our heart. He takes and he removes dross while leaving the four chambers and attacked. He turns around and pours his word into the heart. And he begins to pour himself in there. More of him, more of him, less of you. And it's so supernatural. Like, we can't even see it. It's happening right now. All around us in this room, the Holy Spirit's moving on hearts. And this is happening, surgery right now. And and we don't, you know, I don't have x-ray vision. I can't tell you how it is and how it isn't. And maybe some people's surgery is getting canceled. Other people's surgeries, it's already done. Maybe somebody's getting prepped for surgery right now. But Jesus has got it all covered. The Holy Spirit's got it all worked out, and he's doing it right now. And and how would we know unless we had, like, a a supernatural, like, CAT scan or, or like, whatever you would use there to, like, look and examine the heart? You know, he did kind of give us something like that. Jesus said if we would go to our Father in heaven and ask him to examine our hearts, reveal what's in my heart, Lord. I lay these things, I put these things down. I can, I can repent of these, I can get rid of these things. He can do the supernatural work. Maybe that feels like it's not part of your plan, you know, because it, 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 it's painful. It, it, it can be painful. You know, a prep for surgery could be painful, can it? But it bears fruit, it bears fruit. You know, my father-in-law years ago, he had a bypass surgery for the heart. And They had up having to do an aortic valve replacement, and uh, they had him in the room. He was in a six-hour surgery. First few hours, it was just the. And then they said, "Oh no, we gotta we gotta cool the body down. Gotta cool the body down, and certainly bypass it and do all that stuff they were doing to, to replace the aortic valve." And he came out, and man, for a month or two, he was he was racked. He was in a lot of pain. Get rid of the infection, all the other stuff going on, but then eventually the corner was turned and he he began feeling better, having more energy like he never had for the last 10 years. And he just got used to it and thought it was normal because the, the heart had gotten, and the veins had gotten what? Corroded with, you know, whatever, cholesterol or whatever else was in it. You know, don't you think that we don't walk into the world and the filth gets on us? I just had a beautiful action sermon this last week. My son, he plays football. Went to a football game with him. We were at the bleachers. Bleachers look really clean. They're nice. They're like, you know, really nice. And we're sitting there. And there's this little baby. And I love it a little bit. I'm always watching. People watch. I people watch. This little baby's coming over. Ah, he's having fun. You know, I'm supposed to be watching the game. So I'm watching the baby in the game, you know. And, uh, you know, go, whatever. And, uh, you know, he's doing his thing. Okay, you know. And I look at the baby. And the baby goes to climb up on mom's lap. And it's awesome and uh, dad picks the baby up, and as he picks him up, I look at the the, the baby's feet come forward, so you could see the baby's bottom of the baby's feet, like black, pitch black, like dirty from, and where did that dirt come from? Because the the bleachers looked so clean, everything looked clean, but because the baby was crawling all around, you know, walking on all the bleachers and all the stuff, baby, what what did our parents do when we get home? Our grandparents, our loved ones, they take and put us in a bath. And what they do? Scrabbing those little feet down, right? They get the little toes. You remember piggies? Blah, blah, blah. You know, we did the whole thing, right? Come on. <laughs> what does it say in Romans? What about it, pastors of your home, men here? you to wash your wives with the word of God. Because every time we walk out, into a dirty sinful world even though we ourselves may not necessarily engage the sin just being in it we come away with muck and that's what the word of god does it cleanses us it purifies us it it makes us recognize wow because at first sight that bleacher looks clean and the baby's you know why do we got to give the baby the baby's tired why are we gonna give the baby baby's gonna cry tonight there's gonna be pain why are we gonna do this put the baby to bed. No, no, no. We can't put the baby to bed because the baby's feet, they're going to dirty the sheets, the whole thing. You get the point. That's why he's going back. Convince, rebuke, exhort, stir up. And then he makes sure the pastor understands with all long suffering. This doesn't happen in a moment. Patience. It takes time. As God is teaching that individual, you and me, how to surrender. How to submit. Because what we do is we say, I'm going to speak my heart here. I don't want to speak it. Maybe somebody will agree with me. Lord, it's all yours. <laughs> no, really, Lord. You can have it. <laughs> if you prefer. Have we really done that? Have we really given them all our heart? All those things that we hold on to, things that, whoa, 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 whoa Lord, that's it's getting a little close to home. My, my son, my daughter, it's a little close, Lord. My wife, my husband, my job. Wait a minute, Lord. You're getting a little, you're just getting a little real. It's getting real. He says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all suffering and teaching there it is, with all truth, with all light, not with our opinions or our wisdom, but it all comes back to God's word, his truth. For the time will come, friends, it has come. 2,000 years ago, think about it, before 2000, really you can go back to the 1960s as I said last week, but 2,000 years ago, you, you think about when the Apostle Paul was given this, and he was writing this, not even truly understanding all. I mean, he's writing by revelation of Jesus Christ, but not knowing exactly, you know, is that three years? Is Timothy, what he, you know, writing to T- Timothy, is this going to happen right in your day? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will keep up for themselves teachers. Do you realize today we're living in that day? We're living in that time? He goes and says again but the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching friends that time is here last week and the week before I was talking about just even in our area the new apostolic reformation that's going on with some of the churches they're you know but even just make it simpler than that turn in your bibles to first Timothy, chapter 2, verse 12, please. Very, very simple example. How many of you, if you've been sitting here long enough, you, you know this, you've heard this before because read, we read Timothy together, but how many of you know that women are not allowed to be pastors? Right? They can teach ladies, they can teach children, but they're not to stand up and to be pastors of churches. Why? Not because I think so. To be honest with you, I would be comfortable with women being pastors or men's being pastors. I wouldn't care. Either way, it's what does God say in the word of God? That's where I you know, derive at my opinion. Whatever God wants to do, I'm in. You know what I mean? Who am I to have a thought contrary to God? But if you look at verse 12, he says of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, speaking of the word of God going forward, right? But yet, how many churches do you see in our area? You can go to the websites. Pastor Susie such and such. Pastor Shirley such and such. What? That can't be. The word of God clearly says you can't do that. What's the problem? Well, he he goes on and says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound what? Doctrine, teaching. There'll be a time where they come where they won't want to adhere to that. Instead, they will want to adhere to the doctrine they want. And that's ever present because he says, but according to their own desires. He explains why that would be. There is no such thing biblically we just had this new apostolic reformation come through and they had it at a church in our area. And, you know, it was a whole, I mean, thousands of people gathered. Thousands of people gathered for this. And, and I'm sure there was some truth mixed in with some of these other doctrine, this, what we call sound doctrine, the word of God calls it sound doctrine. But do you know what that does? Do you, do you know the difficulty of that when it, when it begins to um, get mixed in? How many of you like chocolate? Some of you like chocolate in here? You can raise your hands. It's okay. You're alive. You got a heartbeat. Go ahead. You can do it. All right. If we, can, we can like chocolate, all right. Come on. I know you don't fib, especially you ladies. You know you love chocolate. Come on now. My wife's like chocolate. All right. How many of you like mashed potatoes? Come on. Mashed potatoes are good. Thanksgiving? No. Some of you may be like, I don't know. Okay. Roasted potatoes, whatever you like. All right. You're in. you in. Sweet potatoes. Okay. How many of you like chocolate mashed potatoes? Some of you are like, I'm going to try that. (laughs) No, don't do that. It's nasty. It's nasty. Um, Some of you are like, no, Pastor, I really like it. You're ruining my example. Um, (laughs) Don't mess my example up. No. The idea here, do you get where I'm going at? Some people like chocolate. Some people like potatoes. But you mix chocolate, mashed potatoes, you got some other concoction. Well, isn't that exactly what happens when you start to teach the Word of God, but then you add something to it, you end up with what? A concoction, something different. It's to their own desires. Each and every one of us. If I go to your house, you invite me over for dinner. Pass come over there. Awesome, thank you. We come over. You're gonna salt your food or season your food slightly different, won't you? Compared to maybe what I do at my house. Maybe we'll be like, oh wow, you salt your and season your food the same, and wow, well, oh, we're like minded. We like salt or we don't, right? Whatever. But we all have a taste. We all have a desire. We all have our own desire. I think we just got to, you know, it's a presupposition we have to come to. We have to acknowledge that. Presupposition meaning something we, we know we ex- exists. But he tells us why. Because they have itching ears. What, what is that idea? That means that they, the, the idea here is they hear what they want to hear something new, something extravagant, something better. And, and so they raise up these teachers like that, that will talk about this something new, extravagant, or, or different. You see, they're seeking teaching not based on the word, but on their own sinful desires. Friends, I can stand before you and say 2,000 years later, that time has come. That time has come. There's a lot of people playing church today. And there's a lot of people playing Christian. You know, they heap up for themselves teachers. That's exactly what they do. Again, not teaching sound doctrine, the word of God, but beginning to teach what? And they will turn their ears away from truth and be turned away to fables, stories. So, so this is, what, what is this a battle for? What, is, what are they after? What is, what is Satan? What is, what is the flesh, the devil, the world? What is it after? Well, it tells us right in verse 4 here, it's all about truth. Because there is one truth. That's really important for us to come to this morning. It's not different aspects or uh, the way I perceive truth or you perceive truth. None of that really matters. <laughs> What is God's word say is truth? That is truth. We either agree with that or we don't. And Amos 3 says, How can two walk together unless they be agreed? Unless there's unity in that. So when we begin walking contrary to that, let's not pretend or play. Let's at least be honest with ourselves and say, That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. You see, they get enticed. And they're given over. And, they're, and the idea of the debased mind, the, the, the sin and everything, and these, these desires. And it turns them away from the truth. And they're turned aside to fables, to stories. He says, but in verse 5, but you be watchful. This, this is not like, hey, be watchmen. You know, I've heard people try to take this. I mean, certainly Ezekiel does talk about that, watchmen. But this is not in context in the Greek of what this is saying. The idea here, be watchful in the Greek, is to be um, free from. I'm free from something. If you look at a Greek lexicon and you look this Greek word up, it means that I am freed from this. You be watchful. You be free from this. Uh, It would be said in that day, um, be free, like you were going to say something, be free from intoxicating drink to be free from that, to not be inebriated or to be um, uh, drunk or, or something like that. You would be freed from that. That's what this idea is he's saying. He says, but you be watchful in all things. You be freed from that in all things. You, 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 you free yourself from that. Why? And this is so powerful. This speaks to my heart because this explains exactly why we're seeing It's so prophetic. God wrote this 2,000 years ago for us, and it's like right smack dab in front of us today. Why? We all ask the question, why? Why is this happening? He tells us what, why is this happening. Because our reasoning or the, reason of, the reasoning of humans or those engaged in sin because of the intoxication of sin They've been compromised. Their reasoning ability has been compromised. Pastor, that can't be. It's got to be a lack of understanding and knowledge. That's not what this says. He says, you be without, you be free from intoxication, right, of sin he's talking about here. In other words, be sober-minded. So, uh, you know, if you ever went, or and I pray this hasn't <laughs> happened to you, but, but uh, if you're ever driving a vehicle after having a few drinks, and the police officer asks you to step out of the vehicle, he's going to ask you to walk a line. Or back, you know, they before they had breath alive, they have all these things now. But back in the day, they would ask you to get out, or they would say, touch your, you know, or you know, do your ABCs, right, you know, backwards, right? Like, that right there was enough for me to be like, you know, I was always intoxicated. I, could, I didn't have to touch a drink, and I'm like, knocked out, you know. <laughs> You know, I used to tell our kids, you know, because that's part of the concussion protocol. If you play soccer, you got to say your ABCs backwards. And I used to say to my kids, you got to memorize this. They're going to think you're concussed all the time. You know, you got to, we got to do it. You know, and they would laugh. they like, I know, dad, because I'm like, I struggled with it too, you know, and uh, pray for us. And, um, <laughs> but as we're, as we're, you know, in, in all seriousness and soberness here, and what he's saying is it's that idea of reasoning that those that, their reasoning's been compromised, but they don't know it. You know, I used to be able to sit down uh, in a bar. I could drink. I was uh, I struggled with alcohol for a long time, and I would drink a lot, and I always, if you would have asked me, are you good? I said, I'm good, man. I'm good. Like, I would never have had the ability to think that I was unable to hand my, handle my liquor or anything like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, you don't, many times, some of you that had you know, before Christ, you had drank, you know what it was like when you do that, you didn't feel it necessarily until you stand up to go to the bathroom or something, and then all of a sudden, whoa, whoa I didn't realize, because when you were sitting down, everything was very good, everything was, was fine there. You get out of the car, the police officer pulls you over and says, hey, walk for me. You start walking, and you're just a little not as, you know, not as stable as you normally are. You're not, as, you're not walking as circumspect, another biblical term. Uh, you, you go to touch your, you know your, your, your ears or whatever you're doing here because you're missing, right? Well, I'm sorry, I got to take you in for uh, drinking while under the influence. What are you talking about? They, literally, people who argue with the police. What do you mean? I'm not drunk. I'm not intoxicated. If they realize they were intoxicated. They wouldn't be arguing about it, but there are so many times where a resist arrest follows right alongside with an intoxication situation. Why? Because their ability and their comprehension to reason, to understand what's going on in that very moment has been compromised. That's what he's telling us, spiritually speaking, is happening today. That the reasoning and ability of men and women in the world, even Christians in the church, because he's speaking to the church here in chapter four, right? He's saying that the reasoning, even in the church, when you're not under the word of God and you're not keeping yourself affixed on that, that you begin to get slightly off. And if anyone was to ask you or you ask yourself, am I good? I am good and checked and locked in. Yet, if they put you through a examination, which the word of God does tell us, Jesus Christ can examine the heart. Many times we do come up what? Wanting. We come up with the reality that we have sin in our lives and things have happened. And we don't even, how did that happen? Where did it, where did that thought even come from? What, why did I say that? You know, all the things we do, it, it's, it takes a moment. And it's all because we begin to believe these fables, these stories of men. And, and instead of being watchful, in other words, freed from this and being sober minded in all things, he says. And then he reminds him, hey, endure afflictions here. Why does he bring it back to that? Because don't forget, he's sitting in a prison right now. Do the work of an evangelist. What does an evangelist do? He's someone that speaks or gives the word of God, right? A herald of salvation, right? Through Christ Jesus, he brings good tidings. He's saying, Timothy, don't forsake the work of the evangelist. Bring the good tidings. Give the good works. Fulfill your ministry here for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Very interesting. This comes from the idea of under the Mosaic law and and, and under what we saw in Numbers, the idea that there would be a burnt or a sin offering. And then what would happen is you would take a drink. It's like if you ever took oil in a pan, heated it up pretty hot like you're going to cook. And then if you take water and you pour water in it, what does it do? It, It brings a lot of steam and a lot of smoke up, right? Well, the same idea with the, the offering in that day. When you would bring an offering, a burnt offering or a sin offering, okay, in, in Leviticus or Numbers, you'd bring like that. What would happen is they were told to bring a, a dr- You could bring a drink offering. They would pour that drink offering on the, the animal that had just been offered, and what it would do is it would create a picture for you, spiritually speaking, of the smoke, the idea of the Shekinah glory or the rising of the smoke, the rising of it up to heaven, the offering being lifted up. That's what it was presenting before you. It was kind of, you know, this going right up into heaven that way. Well, Jesus Christ used a similar picture for us in the idea of wrath when he gave us the picture that this cup, he said it has to be poured out. It's the third cup, right? When you think of a Seder dinner uh, or Seder, uh, it's the third cup. It's the cup of wrath. And Jesus Christ said, this cup will be poured out before you. What did Christ actually ask, though? He says, hey, Lord, if, if Father, take this cup. If this cup, you know, but not my will, your be will be done. He recognized the fact that there's a cup, an offering. Because while Christ was going to certainly be consumed on the cross that way, his side was pierced. And out came this water, this drink, right? The, the thing that surrounded the heart, the chamber of the heart. And what was that but a picture for you and I that know our Old Testament, that know the Mosaic Law as a picture of a drink offering that was being poured out right before them, that not only was the offering of sin being made for sin, yours, mine, past, present, and future, but also that idea of the offering being, you know, the liquid, all of that coming out that way is a beautiful picture of atonement, and what was being brought before the Lord. Paul, in two places, uses the same idea. In Philippians, he brings it and he, he, he brings it forward, but also here for us in verse 6, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He's describing himself, and through this suffering, remember, he just said, fulfill your ministry, endure afflictions, no matter what comes at you, Timothy, endure. Keep on keeping on. The cross before me, death to self, and whatever happens, The world behind me. No looking back, right? Don't put our hand back to the world. Don't go back to the flesh pot of Egypt. Nothing to do with that. You keep going forward, whatever happens. Your government tells you you can't worship, you keep moving forward. Because then you have a problem between God and your government. Who do you listen to? All right, that's the point here that's being brought out. That's the point that's always being brought out. And he says, I'm being poured out that way right now. A drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. He knows at any moment. Any moment. He says. The time of my departure is at hand. He he doesn't even know if he'll finish this letter. Maybe before he's going to be beheaded. Because that's exactly what happens to him. He gets beheaded. He says. I have fought the good fight. You know. I've been with several people. As they're getting ready to pass on. Some to heaven. And some to hell. And. And. There's not a single person that I've had the privilege of being with in those last moments that doesn't some way, unless they're unable to reason because of medication or things that you know, sedates them, that doesn't assess their lives in some way, doesn't even my mother I remember a couple of days before she was you, know, she had lung cancer, was sedated with some medicine. I remember taking very much an assessment. Of her life and she's sitting with me, you know, and asking me to sit next to her in the bed. And we went through these things. And it's always been true. I mean, we in our very nature, we we come to this place where all of the things that we've done in this temporal earth, this earth that's decaying, this earth that's dying, we, we come to this place where we we recognize in our any moment we are going to not be here. We're going to either go on to be with the Lord or we're gonna be go on to be eternally separated from him. And we assess our lives. Sort of Paul's doing that right now. He's, he's saying, I have fought a good fight. He's looking back as he's sitting in this dungeon. He's thinking about all the things that have happened to him, all the first, second, third, fourth missionary journeys, all of that stuff that had happened. He says, I finished the race. He says, I did, I did what God put before me. I've kept the faith. <laughs> Finally, there's laid for me a crown of righteousness. That crown is for faithful living. Who gets that crown? First of all, we're going to read all of us do, born-again believers in Christ. All those that love his appearing. That's what it says here. He says, for finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day, and not me only, but to all, that's you, circle that, who have loved his appearing. Be diligent, he goes to Timothy, closes his letter with these practical things now at this point. Not sure how much longer he's going to live. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, as I said before, the world behind me, the cross before me. He's reflecting again, practically speaking, probably thinking, Timothy, remember Demas, don't be a Demas, Timothy. You can read about him in Colossians 4 and uh, Philemon Philemon, uh, 24. He's, 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 he's departed for Thessalonica. Now he goes and lists two examples of men that have not uh, forsaken him the same way as far as because they were in sin, but because they had ministry business to adhere to. Crescens, right, from Galatia, and Titus from Dalmatia, right? These were nothing, they didn't do any sinful thing, but they were on ministry business, and they had to do things for the Lord. Only Luke is with me, Dr. Luke. He's the only one that was with them at that time, and it's good because nobody wants to die alone. That's not changed. Even Mother Teresa, you know, I, I don't like care for too much a lot of what the you know. Many know I was raised Roman Catholic. I know much about that denomination, and uh, certainly have a lot to disagree with, uh, biblically speaking. But one thing I thought Mother Teresa did that was really, really uh, beautiful is that when there was AIDS and all the breakout was happening in that area, and so many men and women were dying. She would often send herself or other people that were, and they would go out and sit with that person as they were dying so that they would never be alone. Beautiful, beautiful. He goes on to say, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to men for ministry, or to me, excuse me, I meant to say, for ministry. And I think this is important because you think back to Acts Fifteen. You remember what happened? There was a big split. I mean, John Mark at this point, he was uh, the cousin of Barnabas. Paul and, uh, you know, Barnabas were going to go out on this first ministry journey. He says, hey, let me grab my cousin, John Mark. John Mark says, great, I'll come with you guys. Halfway through it, we're not told why in the book of Acts, but he abandons them. He just says, I'm out of here. He abandons me. He doesn't tell them why. Paul was really cut by that. Paul was hurt by that. So much so that after uh, the first missionary journey was done, second missionary journey was going to begin, and Paul was going out, and Barnabas was coming. And Barnabas said, hey, let me go get John Mark. And Paul's like, "Eh," I'm going to paraphrase, over my dead body. He's not coming with me. That's not going to happen. And you remember what happens after that? He turns around, and Barnabas ends up getting John Mark, and they go. And then Silas ends up coming with Paul, and they go. And God certainly did work between both of those. But you know what it did? It created division. It created division. What I love about this passage is we see a moment of reconciliation here. You and I are brought into his heart, his mind, of the Apostle Paul, and there's a moment where he says, go get Mark. Go get John Mark. Bring him to me. He's useful for the ministry. Time, maybe there's time that went on. We don't know, because there's there's, there's a maturing in our lives. I'm not the same man I was seven years ago, when I started about, I'm not the same man I was six months ago as a pastor, as an under shepherd. You're not the same person you were a day ago. And we need to acknowledge that and understand that God is doing a work in your heart. Well, he's doing a work in the apostle Paul's heart too. And at this moment when he's not, he says, you know what, these petty things, I don't care about that anymore. He says, I desire reconciliation with John Mark. Tell him to come. He's useful for the ministry. And Tiaias, I have sent to Ephesus. Why would he do that? So that Paul, or excuse me, so that Timothy could come. He says, basically, you go over there, Timothy will come to me. That's what he's doing. He's basically relieving Timothy of the pastorship at Ephesus so he can come to be with Paul here in Rome. And he told him, be diligent to come quick. Remember verse 9? Because he doesn't know. He says, Oh, by the way, bring the cloak. This is the Greek word for cloak here is the outer. It's a heavy coat, like what we would say bring your heavy coat. He's telling him, bring the heavy coat that I left, and Carpus at Troas when you come. It's just such a he was cold, it was damp and dingy in a dungeon. He was suffering. And the books, especially the parchments. I'm so encouraged by the Apostle Paul writing this passage, because he literally, here's a man, even even unbelievers, scholarly men, uh, Josephus, uh, extra biblical references, have referenced Paul as one of the most brilliant men that have ever walked the earth. I mean, just really, you know, uh, brilliant, brilliant man. And in all his brilliance, he doesn't sit back and go, hey, I got this. He says, go get the books. And I'm pretty sure he's not talking about you know, novels by such and such, right? You know, this isn't, hey, grab that real, you know, juicy story novel or whatever. No, he's talking about, grab the book, the, the parchments, the books, the, grab the word, bring it to me. I want to I keep studying. I want to have these things before me. He, he Such humility, you know, it's beautiful. Always growing, always growing in the word, always changing, letting God do the work. In verse fourteen, he's kind of settling things. As I said, he's you know, this is practical. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. What Paul's doing here is he's saying, I laying it down. That bitterness is not for me. You know, Acts nineteen thirty three and 1 Timothy one twenty talk about it. He says, I'm. He says he 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 says no. There's not going to be any bitterness for the wrongdoing in my heart. No matter how much somebody wrongs me. I have a choice to lay that down, no matter what they've done. The natural instinct is to want to do what? Defend yourself. Oh, my. But the right answer is to lay it down. And I have no doubt that Paul had come to that point where he says, Alexander the coppersmith, many did me harm. He cut me, hurt me. May the Lord pray him. I leave that up to God. He says, but you, you should also be aware of him. For he has greatly resisted our words. He says, be careful. He has not repented for what he did. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against him. Did you understand what he was saying there in verse 16? I don't know how many. In a Roman court or system, they would have judges that would assemble as part of a, the magistrates coming together, hearing, you might say. And what would happen is the judges would come and the, the person that would had the charge against Paul would bring their, you know, charges and they would get laid out for everybody to hear openly. Before Paul would actually go ahead and have his attorney, if you will, or scribe at that time, speak, what would happen is he would actually have character witnesses come up next. A little different than our situation. Usually we don't call character witnesses until after or we present our defense, Right. They didn't do that. They did it slightly different. What he would do is he the the, the Roman courts would do. They would then allow someone to come forward. What he's saying here is this he is at my first defense, meaning right now while he's in prison, the first time he appeared before, um, not the first time he appeared for prison in Rome. That's already done. That was like six years ago. But the time he is, you know, time for his first hearing, he says no one stood with me, but all forsake me. He's saying that basically when it came to the character witness. Not one person came forward to stand up and speak of the character of the Apostle Paul. Why should we expect any different? And I'm just settle your heart in that. But he said, they all forsook me. Now, they probably did for different reasons. Maybe some came forward because they were going to, but they were worried about getting arrested, or maybe some were already traveling because of the diaspora, and they were already going you know, to Turkey and different areas to Preach the gospel, as we already read. Two were going out um, to Galatia and to Domitia, Titus, and what have you. But he says, all forsook me. And then look what he says here. Beautiful. May it not be charged against them. There's no bitterness in there. You know what? Why? And then he answers it in verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. You know what he's saying there? He says, I took time. I didn't have any character witnesses. Nobody came to stand at my first defense in that hearing. He says, you know what? I didn't waste the time. I stood. Nobody came up. Okay, well, then let me take a moment here. I want to tell you about Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. He preached the gospel. What an example for you and I. I've taken this to heart. If the Lord should allow me to go into prison one day for teaching the word, or or this should happen... I'm not going to sit there and go, woe, it's me. I'm going to be thinking, Lord, when's my opportunity? When's my opportunity? That's 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 what this passage has charged me to think that way. It's changed me. He says that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. He says, basically, I narrowly escaped death, right? Somehow the Lord allowed him not at that moment to be executed. He's certainly waiting that to happen any moment. But at that moment, he had escaped that. God delivered him from that. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me. He doesn't say for this earth or for my next missions trip. He knows for his heavenly kingdom. He knows where he's going. It's time. It's settled in his heart. To him be the glory forever and ever. That's all he can say. He worships. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Amosurus. Uh, remember, he was the only one faithfully stood by him. Erasus stayed in Corinth, but uh, Triumphus, I have left in Miletus, sick. This is important. I love this passage because anybody that, you know, that word of mouth or prosperity gospel or that, you know, you know hey, nobody should ever be sick. You just need to speak it. Well, then Paul needed to be taught that because obviously he didn't do that when he left the man there. There was no sin. There was nothing wrong with leaving that man there that was sick. He didn't think somehow that he had to speak it into existence. That's a false gospel. Um, no this was a man this is an update that he's giving to us in scripture but there's nothing wrong with the fact that he had left him there nor sinful Paul didn't do anything wrong do your utmost to come before winter for, for Eubelus greets you as well as Pundus Linus, Claudia and all the brethren the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit grace be with you amen and what he says here is I give you to Christ and to his grace Paul that's what he's saying. i I'll leave you with this, and I can rest in that, Paul's saying. And then he says, amen. And that means that's the truth, and it also means so be it. And this is the final words that the revelation of Jesus Christ, the 2 Timothy that Paul written, has given us. And I believe it's an incredibly impactful word for you and I today uh, in all that we're living in. So will you stand? We're going to pray. You get your ears checked after service. Some of you might need to get your hearts checked. A little extra beat. I don't know about you, but my heart's beating like a rabbit. Let's set all our hearts for prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you, Jesus. We know you're standing there with open arms. And we're, Lord, with open arms awaiting to come to you, Jesus. We just want to come and be with you. Lord, we continue to pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, the Lord. For these days are wicked. And the evil, Lord, is being called good, and good is being called evil. We need you more than ever now, Jesus Christ. Please. Lord, the fact that we're here means there's still work to be done. So we pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. We pray for a gifting to be able to be used as a willing vessel by you, Lord, in whatever capacity or way. And we do pray, God, that you will protect us from all evil. And that, Lord, that whatever is vying for truth in our heart, Lord, that you will remove it and cast it as far away from us as possible. Lord, We pray you'll help us from us. Keep me from me. Jesus, we know it's a privilege to be alive in these last days. We know you're coming soon. So, Lord, let us us be poured out, as Paul said, as a drink offering. Because we know the time of our departure, Lord, is soon at hand. We give all of this to you, Jesus. We pray for strength and endurance to keep running the race you've set before us. Strengthen our bones, strengthen our hearts, guard us and guide us, Lord. And we ask all of this according to your will because we always want your will to be done. And we pray this faithfully in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. I love you and have a beautiful day in Christ Jesus.